good sling is unerring. The slavocrat giant he slew. So shout if you're freedom preferring for Lincoln and liberty too. We'll go for the son of Kentucky, the hero, the Hoosier dumb through. The pride of the suckers, so lucky for Lincoln and liberty too. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan. Episode 16, Abraham Lincoln, the Great Emancipator. On March 4th, 1861, the United States was a wreck. Or maybe I should say what was left of the United States was a wreck. A decade of disastrous presidential leadership had turned the divide between the North and the South into a chasm. Southern politicians and their partisan press had so thoroughly convinced their constituents that the election of Abraham Lincoln would lead to the immediate end of slavery and the rape and destruction of their white culture that seven states seceded in the months between Lincoln's election and his inauguration. Four more states would secede after he was sworn in. The fate of the Union was at stake. So, We all know Lincoln's going to win the Civil War. What made him the president who could handle this moment? His experience entering office was several decades of practicing law and two years in Congress, just two years of government experience. How did he succeed when a line of presidents with far more impressive resumes had failed? And that's where we'll focus today. This won't be a blow-by-blow of the Civil War. Uh, You'll get something closer to that when we reach President Grant in a couple episodes, or I would highly recommend you check out the Civil War podcast. They do an awesome job covering the Civil War. This will focus on the formative moments of Lincoln's life and career, and how he triumphed in the three main battlegrounds of the Civil War. The political fight to win re-election and keep the Union in the war, the struggle to find a general who could win the war, and the battle to eventually end slavery once and for all. Abraham Lincoln was born February 12, 1809, in a log cabin in Kentucky, and he had a very complicated relationship with his parents. Lincoln's father was a poor and uneducated farmer who taught him how to tell a good story and to dislike slavery, but not much else. Uh, Young Lincoln loved to learn and read, and his father thought all of that was a waste of time. Lincoln's mother died in 1818, when Lincoln was just nine years old, and his father went off to find a new wife, literally leaving the kids like alone in the cabin. Supposedly when he came back, these kids were borderline feral from just taking care of themselves for a while, And when the father came back, he had a new wife, and she was a wonderful woman, Sarah Bush Johnston. She was basically like Mary Poppins walking through the door and changing Lincoln's life. She encouraged Lincoln's education and his ambition. This is when the witty, confident Lincoln we think of really starts to take shape. But Lincoln's love for his stepmother could not overcome his disdain for his father, so he left as soon as he was able and embarked on a variety of careers. He tried his hand at everything. He was a carpenter, a riverboat sailor, a store clerk, a soldier, a merchant, a postmaster, a blacksmith, and a surveyor before finding law and politics, and he stuck to law and politics. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know if my first career is really working out, eh, I mean, maybe just try like nine and eventually you'll figure one out that really clicks for you. But Lincoln was still pretty rough around the edges when he got started in law and politics. Uh, For one, he used his wit to hurt rather than heal at the start, and it got him in trouble. In 1842, he made fun of a prominent and humorless political rival, and this guy actually challenged Lincoln to a duel over it, which Lincoln accepted. Uh, Lincoln was given his choice of weapon, And he knew he was a foot taller than the other guy, so he chose broadswords. Because when you're a foot taller than the other guy, that 
gives you more reach with a weapon like that. When the two reached the dueling ground, I get the sense that that rival kind of looked at Lincoln, sized him up, calculated, did some quick mental math to realize Lincoln could probably stab him before he could stab Lincoln, and he thought better of it, and they both agreed to call the duel off. The the point of the story isn't just that Lincoln is clever, though. It's that he was so embarrassed by this near duel that he never used humor to belittle a rival's pride again. Unlike some politicians, and you can think of a lot of them who use humor as a weapon, Lincoln used it as an olive branch from this point forward. Lincoln is famous for using his sense of humor to make friends, disarm critics, and diffuse tense situations, and that technique began here. And I can also say he was really embarrassed by this moment, because if anybody ever asked him about it down the road, he would just give them a death-like stare that said, I don't want to talk about the time I almost fought a guy. The near duel wasn't the only big event in Lincoln's life in 1842. On November 4th of that year, he married Mary Ann Todd, a woman he had been on and off courting since 1839. They would go on to have four children together. In 1847, after years of working as a traveling lawyer in Illinois, a 38-year-old Lincoln turned the friends and supporters he had made along the way into a successful run for Congress as a member of the Whig Party. This was back during President Polk's administration and at the time of the Mexican-American War. Lincoln opposed the war a little bit because Polk was a Democrat, you know, the opponent, and a little because he thought it was an unjust war of American aggression. And he introduced a series of so-called spot resolutions demanding Polk prove that American blood had been shed on American soil. If, If you remember episode 11 on Polk, The line, American blood on American soil, was the rallying cry that Polk had used to manufacture that war, when really the blood had been shed on soil that, at best, was contested, and at worst, really this was land that many Americans thought belonged to Mexico. Lincoln was largely ignored, though. These resolutions didn't even earn a mention in Polk's diary. And Lincoln caught some blowback for it back home, where his lack of war support was considered unpatriotic. He resigned from office after just one term, and he spent most of the next decade practicing law. Lincoln was a successful, if not spectacular, lawyer. He was known for how friendly and honest he was in the courtroom, and this is when he earned the nickname Honest Abe. He was considered friendly and honest because he would concede points in the case that other lawyers asked whenever he knew he didn't actually need it for his case. So his opponents would get kind of lulled into this sense of of comfort and safety because Lincoln kept giving everything they asked for, and then Lincoln would wallop them where it really mattered and win the case. So he was friendly, honest, but he didn't let you get the points that you actually needed to win. He just let you get the other points so you felt good as you lost. But Lincoln couldn't stay away from politics for long. He couldn't help himself. As the Whig party collapsed, he drifted toward the Republican Party, which was eagerly recruiting him. In 1856, he made it official and ditched the dead Whigs for the up-and-coming Republicans who put him in charge of the Illinois State Party. Lincoln embraced the Republicans' anti-slavery platform. He identified slavery as the cause of the nation's problems, and he actually finished second in the running for the party's vice presidential candidate in the 1856 election. So he was almost on the national ticket right there, the the first election out the gate for the Republicans, and and was just short of that. So yeah, uh, Lincoln, he didn't have much official political experience in office, but he was definitely a big blip on the radar of this new party. In 1858, Lincoln decided he was ready to run for higher office again. But he wasn't willing to settle for Congress this time. He wanted the Senate. And to get there, he'd have to defeat one of the most powerful senators of the 1850s, Stephen A. Douglas, savior of the Compromise of 1850 and architect of the Kansas-Nebraska Act someone we've been talking about quite a bit in the last few episodes. 
the time for the famed Lincoln-Douglas debates is here. The Lincoln-Douglas debates were a series of seven debates, one for each of Illinois' seven congressional districts. They were held from August to October in 1858, but these weren't just local affairs. Illinois was a national battleground state, roughly half Republican and half Democrat, and Douglas was a national figure, so these debates were national news. Journalists used the nation's expanding telegraph system to report every debate in full, so everyone around the country heard the core of the two men's rival philosophies and and started to get a feel for this Abraham Lincoln guy. Now, for Douglas, the philosophy was all about popular sovereignty. For Lincoln, it was all about inalienable rights. Douglas believed that what's legal and illegal should always be determined by popular vote, hence popular sovereignty. While Lincoln believed there were certain inalienable rights that no majority should be able to take away, which is actually a pretty great debate, and you can argue both sides of it. Should everything be up for a vote in a democracy? Or are there inalienable rights? And if so, what are they? Who gets to decide? This was a fascinating election. Lincoln performed pretty well in these debates, but almost as important as his arguments was how he presented himself to Illinois voters. Douglas traveled in a special train designed for comfort and entertainment, and he showed up dressed to the nines for every debate while Lincoln dressed in plain clothes and traveled by passenger car so he could mingle with voters from stop to stop. In the end, Lincoln was defeated by the antiquated way Illinois used to elect its senators. Back in 1858, Illinois senators were elected by the state legislature. So if you wanted to win the Senate, you had to help your party win the legislature. You can almost think of it as a state version of the Electoral College. (laughs) which is probably why a constitutional amendment is going to end this whole system in 1913. Personal opinion of mine, the Electoral College is stupid. (laughs) The Republicans won their statewide races for other offices, indicating they won the state's popular vote. But like the Electoral College, the popular vote doesn't amount to much if the votes aren't where you need them. The Democrats won the state legislature, and the legislature re-elected Douglas to the Senate. When Lincoln lost his Senate race in 1858, he thought his political career was over, but he insisted the fight for liberty would endure, saying, The cause for civil liberties must not be surrendered at the end of one or even 100 defeats. In Lincoln's case, there would be just this one defeat. The 1860 presidential election is here, and Lincoln is going to shock the Republican Party and the nation by winning the party's nomination and then the presidency. Lincoln had several well-established rivals for the 1860 Republican nomination. New York Governor William Seward, who we've been hearing about since episode 13 on Millard Fillmore, he was a big one. But he was viewed as too radical on abolition for the party's moderates. Ohio Governor Salmon Chase was a party titan, but his impressive pedigree was undermined by his complete lack of charisma. Pennsylvania Senator Simon Cameron and Missouri lawyer Edward Bates were the other major contenders, but both had once belonged to the Know Nothing Party, and so neither would ever be able to win the immigrant vote, which left Lincoln and his clever convention strategy. As the convention approached, Lincoln, who Per the norm of the time, would not be on site. He picked his floor managers wisely, and he embraced a strategy that had successfully nominated Presidents Polk and Pierce in the past. Quote, My name is new in the field, and I am not the first choice of a great many. Our policy, then, is to give no offense to others. Leave them in a mood to come to us if they shall be compelled to give up their first love. To be fair, Lincoln was being modest. Lincoln finished second on the first ballot at this convention, just 70 delegates behind Seward and 50 ahead of anybody else. But then he closed the gap in the second ballot, and then he won it outright on the third. It helped that he was popular in the Midwest, a region the Republicans needed to gain strength to win in the 1860s, and his floor managers were no dummies. 
when they heard that Seward was bringing in trainloads of supporters from New York to pack the convention hall with pro-Seward cheerleaders, they rushed their own trainloads of Lincoln supporters, printed uh, duplicate tickets, basically gave these guys fake tickets to get into the event, and then told their guys to arrive so early that they would take all the seats before Seward's loyalists even got there. Seward's loyalists were unable to enter the hall, and Lincoln enjoyed loud and vociferous support on every ballot. Lincoln was back in Springfield, Illinois, when he heard the news. He told the assembled crowd, Well, gentlemen, there's a little woman at our house who is probably more interested in this dispatch than I am. Mary Todd Lincoln had always predicted he'd one day be president and vigorously supported his career. As Lincoln won the Republican nomination, the Democratic convention collapsed over the issue of slavery. Stephen Douglas, Lincoln's recent rival for Senate, was nominated by Northern Democrats, but the Southern Democrats rejected him as too hostile to slavery, which is crazy when you remember that this is the guy who brought us the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 and the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. Southern Democrats stormed out of the first convention and nominated John C. Breckinridge instead. With the Democrats split, Lincoln decided to just stay out of the way and let them implode. While Douglas vigorously campaigned across the country, Lincoln made just one public appearance, gave zero speeches, and simply encouraged Republican Party unity. He complained of being bored during the campaign. Imagine that. On election day, Lincoln's name wasn't even allowed on the ballot in 10 southern states. Despite that, he still eked out a win thanks to overwhelming northern support. The final tally was 1.9 million votes for Lincoln, 1.4 million votes for Douglas, 850,000 for Breckinridge, and 590,000 for a third-party union candidate. If you add that up, Lincoln got about 40% of the vote, despite not being on the ballot in 10 states. Lincoln made a killing in the Electoral College, though. This time, the votes were where he needed them. He won 180 electors and swept the North. Douglas, who finished second in the popular vote, won only a single state, Missouri and its 12 electors. Breckinridge swept the South and won 72 electors, and that fourth Unionist candidate won the Upper South and 39 electors. Lincoln had won the White House. But the South wasn't taking the news too well. Less than a week after the outcome was announced, South Carolina's state legislature unanimously voted to hold a convention on secession. Eight days later, Georgia followed suit. Within a month, every state in the Lower South had taken steps toward seceding. As Inauguration Day approached, seven states had already seceded, a new Confederate government had already been formed, and 400 loyal federal troops were trapped at Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. The Civil War is here, and it will be up to Lincoln to win it. And so, on March 4th, 1861, 52-year-old Abraham Lincoln, the former one-term Whig congressman and first-ever Republican president, snuck into Washington in the middle of the night, wrapped in a shawl and disguised as a female Pinkerton agent's invalid brother to avoid assassination attempts. Most of the South had already seceded and the threat of assassination was real incredible. Once in D.C., when Lincoln placed his hand on the Bible and was sworn in, he faced a challenge greater than any president has faced before or since. The survival of the nation was at stake. In lieu of the usual what's going on in the world that I would give right here, I want to give a quick recap on how we got here, on how the United States went from independence in 1776 to civil war. The best place to start is the Northwest Ordinance of 1786. 
This was Continental Congress days, so after the revolution, but before the presidency even existed. The 13 former colonies had overlapping claims to the land west of the Appalachian Mountains, and relations between the states were getting chippy over who got what land. So the Continental Congress decided if the states couldn't play nicely, it would take the toy away. The lands north of the Ohio River were declared federal territory, and slavery was banned there. The southern states voted against this restriction, of course, but in 1786, the north had more votes, so the south lost. And you get a sense, they never got over that. In 1804, Thomas Jefferson bought the Louisiana Purchase from France, doubling the size of the country. And in 1820, a chunk of it applied to join the Union as the new state of Missouri. Southerners demanded Missouri be admitted as a slave state, while Northerners said no way Jose, and right here, less than 40 years after independence, some in the South begin threatening to secede if they don't get their way. Speaker of the House Henry Clay, who, by the way, was a great hero of Lincoln's, came up with a compromise. Missouri was admitted as a slave state, but any other states carved from the Louisiana Territory north of the 36-30 parallel would be free, which the South was okay with because, frankly, they weren't sure the Great Plains were even survivable to human settlement. <laughs> they viewed the Great Plains as an American desert. This compromise held for nearly 30 years. In 1845, President John Tyler annexed the Republic of Texas, and President James K. Polk used the annexation to manufacture a war with Mexico and conquer the American Southwest, which reopened the question of slavery. Would all this newly won territory be free or slave? Once again, some in the South threatened to secede if they did not get their way. A much older Henry Clay came up with a new compromise, this time pushed through by Stephen Douglas, remember him. It said the new land could vote for itself if it wanted to be free or slave, including newly acquired land north of the old Missouri Compromise Line. Aspects of this compromise were so unpopular that the old Whig party, which passed it, broke apart and died, and a new anti-slavery party, the Republican Party, began to take shape. It didn't take long for Southerners to begin clamoring for more. There was still a lot of old Louisiana territory where slavery wasn't allowed, and they wanted to expand there. In 1854, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which voided the old Missouri Compromise and said the remaining Louisiana purchased land, which people were starting to move into it, it could organize into new territories that would vote for themselves if they'd be free or slave, just like that land taken from Mexico, granting a huge wind to slaveholders and a huge tragedy to the people of Kansas. Border ruffians from Missouri flooded into Kansas as it was organizing into one of these new territories and installed a pro-slavery government through fraudulent elections. Presidents Pierce and Buchanan both supported the fraudulent pro-slavery government in Kansas, resulting in the split of the Democratic Party as Northerners and Southerners decided their differences were greater than their commonalities. And that opening allowed the election of President Lincoln. And then the South began to secede. For months now, Southern politicians and their partisan press had been spreading the lie that Lincoln was going to abolish slavery the moment he was elected. Further, they were convinced the slaves, once freed, would wage a race war upon Southern whites and kill them all. John Brown's raid on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry, Virginia, where he hoped to spark a slave rebellion, only fueled those fears. But that race war stuff was never going to happen. Shoot, Lincoln freeing the slaves wasn't going to happen. Sure, Lincoln opposed slavery, but all he wanted to do was restore the Missouri Compromise and prevent slavery spread to new federal territory. He had no plans to abolish it in states where it existed when he ran for office. But Lincoln's words didn't really matter anymore. The South had come to believe the lie. Southerners lived in an alternate reality political media landscape, and secession made sense as their only option for survival. And if that media landscape sounds familiar 
to the online political partisan echo chambers of today? Yeah, it's kind of worrisome. But I'm like 30 presidents away from modern times, so you're just going to have to sit on that thought for a while. Let's get back to March 4th, 1861. Lincoln has been elected. Seven southern states have finally made good on that oft-made threat to secede. Four more will follow, and Lincoln has to find a way to save the Union and win the war. He's going to do it in three ways, and I'm going to get into all three. First, he needs to win the PR battle. And by PR battle, I mean he needs to limit further secessions. He needs to rally the North behind the war, and he needs to win re-election so the war can be fought until it's won. Second, he needs to find generals who can win and get rid of guys who can't, which is not easy when the guys who suck have political patrons who don't want to see them go. Third, saving the Union won't do much if slavery still exists to continue dividing the country on the other side of the war. It will take time, but Lincoln will come to realize abolition is the answer, and he will muster Congress's support to make it happen. So, let's start with the PR battle. Yes, on the day Lincoln was inaugurated, seven states had already seceded. But it was an open question how many more would go. There were still eight slave states left in the Union at that point, including Virginia and Maryland, which, look at a map, they're on both sides of Washington, D.C. Lose both of them, and you've lost your capital. You can't get to it. The game's over before it's begun. So if Lincoln was going to have any hope of keeping these states in the Union, let alone rallying the North behind the war, he could not be the aggressor. But that put him in a bit of a pickle. How could he force the southern states to stay in the Union if he couldn't invade? That's where Fort Sumter comes in. Fort Sumter, located in Charleston Harbor, South Carolina, was one of the last federally held forts in Confederate territory and it was running out of supplies. Most of Lincoln's advisors urged him to evacuate the fort, saying it would be embarrassing if it fell and arguing it couldn't be defended anyway. But in Lincoln's eyes, that was kind of the point. He announced the fort would not be surrendered, and a ship full of supplies was sent its way. And that's when the Confederacy played right into Lincoln's hands. On April 12th, 1861, just barely a month after Lincoln was sworn in, Confederate forces in South Carolina began firing their cannons at Fort Sumter. The South had fired first. Two days later, the fort surrendered. And then everything went into turbo mode. The North was outraged by this act of Southern aggression. This can't stand. They're insulting our honor. Of course we'll fight to save the Union. Lincoln called for 75,000 volunteers, and all across the North, men enlisted to answer the call. But, while the shelling of Fort Sumter rallied many in the North to defend the Union, the calling for 75,000 volunteers pushed four of the slave states that were still in the Union to secede. These four states decided, man, it looks like we're going to have to fight one way or another, and if we're going to have to fight, we want to fight with the South. Three days after Fort Sumter fell, Virginia seceded, followed by Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina. The four northernmost slave states hung in the balance, Kentucky, Maryland, Missouri, and Delaware. Without them, the North probably loses the war, and they were already being a pain in Lincoln's butt. The U.S. Army, it only had 16,000 soldiers at the start of the war. and um, a bit of a, a detour, but contrary to what you may have heard about Southerners in the Army joining the Confederacy, most of the soldiers in the Army stayed loyal to the Union. 80% of the officer corps and almost the entire rank and file stuck with the Union. But they were almost all deployed out in frontier forts on the Great Plains, way far away. There was hardly anybody in D.C. to defend the capital, so the race was on to get those 75,000 initial volunteers down to D.C. before a Confederate army could organize and take it. And that's when Maryland, which was very wishy-washy on this whole United States idea, said, you can't move your men through Baltimore. Which is kind of ridiculous. 
because the northern rail lines to D.C., they all ran through Baltimore. But Lincoln couldn't afford to offend Maryland, so he said, fine, my men will get out of their trains outside Baltimore, walk around it, and then walk to D.C. And then Maryland said, actually, we don't want your soldiers anywhere in Maryland. Please find another way to D.C. Which, well, I mean, Virginia had already seceded, so there was no other way to D.C. At this point, Lincoln said, quote, Union soldiers are neither birds to fly over Maryland nor moles to burrow under it. So, heck no, boss. We'll respect Baltimore, but we're coming through Maryland. It took several terrifying months, but the Union army reached D.C. before the Confederates, and by making the Confederates the aggressor, Lincoln was able to keep all four of the remaining border states in the Union. On July 4th, 1861, he rallied the words of the English language to give an impassioned rationale for why the North had to fight the war. This war was, quote, essentially a people's contest. On the side of the Union, it is a struggle for maintaining the substance of government whose leading object is to elevate the condition of men, to lift artificial weights from all shoulders, to clear the paths of laudable pursuit for all, to afford all an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life. Now, I'm going to start talking about the generals in a moment, because this is about when the real fighting starts. But before I do, I want to wrap up this thread on how Lincoln won the war of words that was the PR battle. And I want to stress, keeping the North in the war was every bit as important as knocking the South out of it. If Northern willingness to fight reaches zero, the war is over, the Union loses. So Lincoln needed to keep that Northern willingness to fight above zero. And he was going to have to walk some fine lines to do it, because the Civil War is going to last four years, and it's going to look hopelessly futile to the Union for quite a bit of it. One of Lincoln's first big moves to keep the North behind the war came on September 24, 1862, when he suspended the writ of habeas corpus for anyone, quote, guilty of any disloyal practice affording aid and comfort to rebels against the authority of the United States. Basically, this meant that if you supplied the rebels, supported the rebels, or potentially even spoke out in favor of the rebels, you could be imprisoned without a trial. Tough luck, freedom of speech. Now, this isn't actually as unconstitutional as it sounds. The Constitution specifically says you can suspend the writ of habeas corpus when the suppression of a rebellion requires it. But that didn't make it any more popular in the North, especially when Lincoln didn't really explain or defend his decision at first. Yes, this act had a chilling effect on anti-war rhetoric, but Republicans paid for it in the 1862 midterms, and it raised serious questions about whether Lincoln could win re-election in 1864. If Lincoln loses re-election before the war is over, well, a Democratic administration's willingness to fight would likely be zero. But Lincoln wasn't blind to this threat, so he started looking for ways to make sure his supporters in the army who wanted to win the war could vote. Government clerks and soldiers were given furloughs to go home and cast their ballots, and the first ever mail-in ballots were deployed in 1864. Lincoln also began being much more vocal in the defense of his administration and the war effort. He wrote pamphlets, he wrote letters, and he gave speeches. On November 19, 1863, at the dedication of a battlefield cemetery near Washington, D.C., Lincoln gave one of the most powerful speeches of his presidency clearly articulating why the war had to be fought and won. The Gettysburg Address is short, so I'll read it here in full. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field, 
as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that the nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who have fought here had thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. When the Democrats nominated former Union General George McClellan, a man we'll learn more about in a bit as their presidential candidate in Chicago on a platform calling for peace with the South, the Republicans dubbed the Democratic platform the Chicago Surrender. Everyone knew what 1864 was a referendum on. Peace or a war. After hundreds of thousands dead, hundreds of thousands wounded, and billions of dollars spent, did the North have the heart to keep fighting? That's what this presidential election was about. As poorly as the war had often gone, Lincoln was able to rally the nation behind him, handedly winning the re-election with 55% of the popular vote, 212 to 21 in the Electoral College, making him the first president to win re-election since Andrew Jackson 32 years earlier. Yeah, that's right. Nobody had won re-election in 32 years. So this was huge. Lincoln's re-election was the final proof that he had won the PR war. The North's willingness to fight would not be defeated. But he still did have to destroy the Confederate willingness to fight or ability to fight. He still had to win the war war. So let's rewind a bit to those turbocharged days of April 1861. After Fort Sumter had fallen, but before the first major battle had been fought, when Lincoln needed to find a general who could win this war. Okay, so after Fort Sumter had fallen, but before the first major battle had been fought, Abraham Lincoln called the most respected and experienced man in the army to help him win the war. General Winfield Scott! Oh, fussin' feathers! That's right! Scott, who we first met during the War of 1812, and who reached incredible fame during his audacious conquest of Mexico City during the Mexican-American War, he is still around and kicking. But at 74 years old, he was nowhere near young enough to, to actually lead this war himself. So Lincoln reached out to ask him, who should we put in charge of the Union armies? And that's when Scott thought back to one of his favorite subordinates from those campaigns in Mexico, Robert E. Lee. Make the offer, Lincoln said. So an offer was made, but Lee said no. Lee was a Virginian, and Virginia had just seceded, so he was going to stick with his state. But I want to highlight here, Winfield Scott, he was a Virginian too, and he stayed loyal to the Union, so it's not like Lee didn't have a choice in the matter. But that was small consolation to Lincoln, who had to find another general. Lincoln landed on General Irvin McDowell, a 23-year army veteran who had served in Mexico. By early June, a Union army of fresh volunteers had assembled in Washington, D.C., and Congress was eager to see it used. Few Americans had ever seen an army this big. And, I mean, how organized could those Confederates be? This was going to be a cakewalk. Plus, Maintaining an army is expensive. Let's win this war quick so we can send everybody home. McDowell didn't feel his army was ready because, I mean, remember, 
These people had all just signed up a few months earlier, but he wasn't really given much of a choice in the matter. Congress wanted him to attack, and so attack he did. On July 21st, 1861, McDowell's army met the Confederate army at the town of Manassas in the First Battle of Bull Run. More than a few overconfident senators and civilians traveled along with picnic blankets to watch what they were confident would be an easy victory. What they saw instead was a disaster. The battle began well enough for the North, but the timely arrival of Confederate reinforcements and the lack of training among Northern soldiers turned an almost victory into a terrible defeat. The army was sent reeling back to D.C., and Lincoln replaced General McDowell with General George McClellan. That's right, this is the same George McClellan who will run for president as a Democrat against Lincoln in 1864. And this begins a procession of seven different generals who would attempt to lead the Army of Virginia to victory over the next four years. Which is ridiculous. The problem kind of boiled down to flaws in 1860s American military thought. At the start of the war, Lincoln went to the library, and he got a bunch of books on military history, and he studied them. He knew he wasn't an expert, so he wasn't going to micromanage his generals, but he would say to them, Hey guys, I don't want to be a pest, but maybe we should destroy the enemy army. Which, (laughs) that might sound like an obvious thing to do, but his generals weren't doing it. Because in their eyes, destroying the enemy army was not how you won a war. Okay, let's back out a bit. The most influential book on American military thought at this time was Elements of Military Art and Science by a guy named Henry Halleck. Henry Halleck spent most of the war as the Union's commander-in-chief overseeing all its generals and the big-picture Union war strategy. In his book, Elements of Military Art and Science, Halleck wrote that wars could and should be won purely through the strategic capturing and holding of land. In his view, the ideal strategist didn't fight any battles at all. They just maneuvered their enemy into defeat, which is kind of like trying to play chess, but saying you're not allowed to actually capture any enemy pieces. Sir, maneuver is part of war, but it's not all of war. But it was to Halleck and many of the generals on both sides of the conflict, which made for a lot of bad generalship. Are you ready? I'm going to run you through seven generals in four years in like 30 seconds. Some of these guys will get sacked for losing. Some of them will get sacked for winning. But remember, not destroying the enemy army. McDowell was replaced by McClellan after the Union defeat at Bull Run. And then McClellan was replaced by Pope after the failed Peninsular campaign. And then Pope was replaced by round two of McClellan after Pope lost the second battle of Bull Run. And then McClellan was replaced by Burnside after McClellan won the Battle of Antietam, but allowed Lee's army to escape what should have been a war-ending victory. And then Burnside was replaced by Hooker after Burnside lost the Battle of Fredericksburg. And then Hooker was replaced by Meade after Hooker lost the Battle of Chancellorsville. And then Meade was replaced by Grant after Meade won the Battle of Gettysburg, but failed to follow up by taking the fight to Lee. And then Grant won the war. And quick extra note here, just a fun one. Burnside, General Burnside, I've read that he might be the origins of the term sideburns. Possibly the original sideburns was General Burnside. Fun fact. Now, uh, I mentioned Grant wins the war for Lincoln. We'll get more into Grant when we go to our episode on President Grant, which is going to be awesome. But in short, he won because he thought the purpose of war was destroying the enemy army. That's right. Grant had already captured several Confederate armies during his campaigns out west. When Lincoln put Grant in charge of the east, he finally found a general who could fight. The final campaign of the war was a brutal slog, but with Lincoln's support, Grant never wavered. Where other generals might throw a punch and say, ow, that kind of hurt my knuckle, I'm going to stop punching now, Grant kept punching until the war was over. On April 2nd, 1865, Grant captured the Confederate capital of Richmond. A week later, he accepted Lee's surrender at Appomattox. Between those two dates, 
Lincoln traveled down to the captured Confederate capital with one of his sons, Tad, and walked its streets. When the freed slaves saw him and recognized him, they rushed to greet him. They all wanted to shake the hand of the man who had set them free. Which brings me to the third metaphorical battlefield of the Civil War, emancipation. Because it wasn't easy, but if Lincoln had not freed those slaves, then the whole damn war would have been for nothing. So, one last time, let's turn back the dial to the early days of the war, when the South had just seceded because it was convinced Lincoln was going to free all those slaves, and when Lincoln was insisting, there was no way he was going to do just that. One of my favorite things about Lincoln was the way he allowed his thoughts and opinions to grow and evolve over the course of his life. From a young age, Lincoln had been anti-slavery, because his father had been anti-slavery. But that didn't mean Lincoln was necessarily an abolitionist. Shoot, during the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he said he did not favor, quote, social or political equality for African Americans. As late as that date, 1858, he was one of the many Northerners who didn't want slavery to expand, but who probably still thought whites were a superior race. He believed African Americans had the right to, quote, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which meant no slavery. But that didn't mean he believed in full equality. Yet. At the start of the war, Lincoln didn't want to touch slavery because of all his balancing acts, this was the highest tightrope. If he moved too fast on slavery, he would push the slave-holding border states, including all-important Maryland, into Confederate arms. But if he moved too slow on slavery, he would lose the support of his own party, where the abolitionist wing was increasingly clamoring for an end of slavery altogether. Over the course of four years, Lincoln incredibly pleased both sides at the critical times when they had to be pleased. He kept the border states in, he kept his party loyal, and he eventually ended slavery for good. But there were landmines, big ones, the first of which came from the army, where abolitionist generals got a bit ahead of themselves on the freeing the slaves front. General John C. Fremont, the 1856 Republican presidential candidate who was now a general responsible for winning the war in the West, he issued a proclamation in the opening days of the war saying all rebel slaves were to be emancipated, which, remember Lincoln's balancing act, this freaked out Maryland and Kentucky, two slave states who were still in the Union but thinking about quitting it. The abolitionist wing of the Republican Party loved this proclamation, but Lincoln was forced to countermand it to prevent Maryland and Kentucky from fleeing the Union. He also pointed out that if generals started exerting political party with edicts like that, dictatorship wouldn't be far off. And so the North generally lined up behind Lincoln, but man, he was not happy with Fremont after that. But appeasing the border states didn't mean giving up on its campaign promises. Lincoln had run on a platform of ending the spread of slavery to federal territories. So, in June 1862, he signed a law outlawing slavery in those territories, basically totally ignoring the Dred Scott Supreme Court case, which had said the government couldn't do that. Which also raises the question of when can the Supreme Court be ignored, but I'll just leave you uh, that thought to chew on. 1862 was also the year Lincoln started giving emancipation more consideration. And once again, the border states were a factor, but this time, they were a factor in favor of emancipation. There were two reasons. First, as long as slavery existed in the border states, they might bolt for the Confederacy. And second, Europe. The people of Europe were very anti-slavery, but they were also very economically dependent on southern cotton, which they weren't getting because the North had blockaded southern ports at the start of the war. The sooner Lincoln could clearly make this a war between slave states and free states, the sooner he could feel confident Europe wouldn't intercede on the South's behalf. So, on March 6, 1862, Lincoln urged Congress to pass a bill allowing the federal government to pay any state or the District of Columbia for the emancipation of their slaves, which was huge. No president had ever supported a proposal that might end slavery anywhere, and here was Lincoln getting such a proposal passed into law. 
But none of the border states took the feds up on the offer. Only Washington, D.C. emancipated its slaves on April 16th. So Lincoln started thinking bigger. He started thinking, maybe it's time to emancipate everybody. In June 1862, Lincoln started working on the Emancipation Proclamation, the document that would end slavery in all rebel states. He spent months developing the logic of the argument. Whenever abolitionists would visit, he'd pick arguments with them and and make the case for keeping slavery, which forced the abolitionists to give him compelling arguments that he could later borrow on why slavery should be abolished. On July 22nd, he presented the Emancipation Proclamation to his cabinet, where his Secretary of State, William Seward, raised one valid concern. If Lincoln issued it at the wrong time, this proclamation might be perceived by Europe and the South as an act of desperation, as Lincoln trying to inspire a slave revolt in the South because he knew we couldn't win on the battlefield. So Lincoln, he had to wait until a great Union victory before revealing it. Luckily, he didn't have to wait long. On September 17, 1862, Lincoln's second general, George McClellan, on his second time around, defeated Lee in the Battle of Antietam, the bloodiest day in American history. This was the battle that disappointed Lincoln because while McClellan won the field, he hadn't destroyed Lee's army, and so the war continued. But as far as the needs of the Emancipation Proclamation went, this would be enough. Five days after the battle, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, announcing all slaves in rebel-held territory would be freed on January 1st, 1863, if the South refused to surrender. Theoretically, 3.5 million people would become free. Because, sure, Lincoln may have said all the slaves in the South were free, but until the Union Army could get to them, they were still slaves. The Emancipation Proclamation was a huge deal in the North. The abolitionists loved it, they held rallies, and wrote glowing newspaper editorials. But the North wasn't all abolitionists. You still had four slave states in the Union. How do you think they felt? And what about the army? The Democrats in the army became borderline insurrectionary. But, as it turned out, Lincoln's delayed announcement was the right move. The announcement may have gotten the Union boiling, but it didn't boil over. On January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, and Lincoln expanded on it by finally allowing the recruitment of African Americans into the army and giving up on an idea that he'd long had of resettling African Americans to Africa. From this point on, Lincoln would look for ways to integrate the freedmen into American society. In 1864, Lincoln took his final steps toward ending slavery in the Union for good. As president, he had felt confident in his powers to end slavery in rebel territory. But to do so nationally, he needed a constitutional amendment. And this wouldn't be easy. When Lincoln won re-election in 1864, the Confederacy realized its goose was cooked. So it sent peace delegates north to try and get the most favorable terms it could. You know, like maybe preventing an amendment against slavery. Lincoln knew that if the war-weary North was told it could have peace now if it ditched the slaves, it might have happened. So he didn't tell anybody the peace commissioners had been sent. But that's not all he did. In addition to keeping the peace delegates secret, he ordered his cabinet to grease as many palms as necessary to secure the amendment's passage in Congress. Honest Abe decided that, at least this once, maybe honorable ends could justify dishonest means. On January 31st, 1865, Congress passed the 13th Amendment by the barest of margins. It was ratified later that year. The 13th Amendment ended slavery by giving citizenship to anyone born on American soil. For nearly 100 years, slavery had been the one issue above all others that divided Americans and gave lie to the creed that all men were created equal. Finally, it was over. On April 11, 1865, less than a week after Lincoln's trip to a captured Richmond, he gave a speech in Washington, D.C. where he came out in favor of African-American suffrage for, quote, 
the very intelligent, and on those who serve our cause as soldiers. Which, you know, it's not universal suffrage, but I have to say, looking at the trajectory of Lincoln's thoughts on African Americans, I think this is the first step to taking the country there. But what Lincoln didn't know was a theater actor named John Wilkes Booth was in the crowd that day. And when Booth heard Lincoln come out in support of African American suffrage, he lost it. Booth had already been plotting to kidnap Lincoln with the ring of conspirators. Now he was convinced Lincoln must die. Three days later, Booth entered Lincoln's box at Ford Theater and shot the great emancipator in the back of the head. Lincoln was carried to a house across the street and placed in a bed that was too short for his long body. He died at 7.22 the next morning. He was 56 years old. Lincoln had no chance for last words, but as he died, his Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, offered his own, saying of Lincoln, quote, Now he belongs to the ages. And thus passed perhaps the greatest of all our presidents, shot dead by an assassin. He wouldn't be the last. Now, most of the story of Lincoln, you probably knew the broad strokes of. You knew he won the war, freed the slaves, and was killed at Ford Theater. But the crazy thing is, as busy as he was with the whole war effort and emancipation, he did so much more. Two new states were admitted during Lincoln's administration. West Virginia, which split off from Confederate Virginia to stay in the Union in 1863, and Nevada, which became a state in 1864. Lincoln also signed the Homestead Act which opened the millions of acres of western land to cheap and easy settlement. And he signed the Morrill Act, which enabled the creation of 69 land-grant colleges like Cornell, Ohio State, and my alma mater, Texas A&M, which totally should have gotten into the 2020 college football playoffs ahead of Ohio State, but I'm not bitter about it. Lincoln signed bills supporting the creation of the first national railroad, the first revenue tax, and basically the first non-gold-backed U.S. dollar. He was an incredibly accomplished president. Internationally, the world had changed. Have you ever ridden the tube in London? The first section of London Underground was opened in 1863, during the American Civil War. Victor Hugo published Les Mis in 1862, and the Second Mexican Empire was founded as a French puppet state with a European monarch at its head in 1864. It offered limited support to Confederacy during the Civil War. Okay, so what was it about Lincoln that allowed him to be such a successful president? How had he steered the country through its greatest crisis, despite entering the White House as one of our least experienced presidents ever? I think the answer is humility and a sense of humor. Lincoln is famous for the humorous stories and jokes he told to defuse tense situations, which you can imagine there were many of during the war. Lincoln had built a cabinet of very talented but disagreeable personalities. Many of the men had their own presidential ambitions, and the whole crew could have easily turned into a viper's nest. But Lincoln used his humor to effectively disarm them. One example of this is when he was told his secretary of war had called him a fool. Did Stanton call me a fool? Lincoln asked in mock astonishment. Yes, he was reassured. Well, I had better go over and see Stanton about this. Stanton is usually right. When a leader is willing to humble themselves through humor, it reveals a confidence that puts others at ease, bridges divides, and refocuses everyone's attention on what really is important, the task at hand. Before I get to the ending music today, I need to tell you about a little mistake I made. In our previous episode, you heard me interview historian Thomas Belserski for a deeper dive on President James Buchanan. That interview came about when Tom reached out to me a few months back and said, hey, if I ever wanted to talk to him about Buchanan, he'd be game. So I did, and I thought it was great fun. And it sounds like you all enjoyed it too. So I decided I would try to interview a historian or two again on Abraham Lincoln. But I wasn't sure how hard it would be to get these historians to agree to sit down with me. So I emailed six of them. Five responded. All five said yes. So, following this episode, you will get five interviews with five historians on different aspects of Lincoln's life, legacy, and administration. The only historian I did not hear back from was Doris Kearns Goodwin. 
So if you would like to hear Doris on the show, drop her a line and ask her to get back to me. After the five historian interviews, because I'm a real glutton for punishment, you'll get a bonus episode on Confederate President Jefferson Davis, where we'll look at the Southern perspective of the Civil War and take a good hard look at the lost cause myth of the Civil War, which is basically the history of the war that former Confederates told to make themselves feel better in the years after their defeat, and which became surprisingly pervasive in how modern Americans remember the war. So yeah, you will get seven episodes of abridged presidential histories this month. This probably won't ever happen again, because that would bury me, but it will happen this month, because you guys are awesome, and you deserve it. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend about the show, then subscribe and write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. It helps me buy books and pay to host the show. The music of today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The intro music was a recording of Isaac Brands from Smithsonian Folkway Records. The primary biography for today's episode was Lincoln by David Herbert Donald. In our next episode, I'll talk to the first of those historians, Louis Major, and I hope I pronounced that right, I'll find out next week, for a deeper dive on emancipation and Lincoln's hopes for reconstruction. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.